Well, hello, everybody. Uh, sorry for the silence, I guess, with the, the intro song today. Uh, not sure what technical glitch happened there. But uh, today is Wednesday, January 30th, and this is Black Digest 153 at Black Height 560,799. So what is up? Man, yeah, you know, technical errors, they come around whenever you're going live. We do it live, but I imagine it's got a little bit to do with just everything's also just so frozen over there in Chicago, and things are moving a little slow for you this morning, Janine, so bear with us on the technical problems today, people. Winter can suck my nuts. <laughs> yeah, especially there in Chicago, man. I saw this video you posted where they're setting the rails on fire to keep them melted so trains can keep going through what is it like negative 20 around there holy lord that's standard operating procedure actually yeah you know i don't know i think at this moment when we have asymmetrical information at a certain point you gotta say sitting that healthy but um that's i'm glad you're doing well at least you know you're making it with some heat around there right yeah i woke up with no power and no heat and like a 50-degree apartment. Doesn't that sound awesome, everybody? Doesn't, sound, doesn't that sound like a great way to wake up? Monkey in cold storage. <laughs> so is the joke you. of the morning. I told you, you're like the third person to make that joke, and all three of you can go to hell. But I'm the first person on this show to use it. You can still <laughs> go to hell. <laughs> so... You're moving has, has hell frozen over? I don't think so, because Chicago always freezes over. It's going to take, like, the government to actually do something productive for hell to freeze over. Chris is going to be very sad when I strangle you, Janine. So you're moving kind of slow this morning, Janine, but how are you doing today? I'm... Doing good. There's been a lot going on today in the news in terms of uh, Venezuela stuff and Iran stuff and some mostly bullshit Hamas stuff. Lots of things. Yeah, there's been a lot going on. And I'll tell you, it's been kind of hard for me to focus because of uh, what happened recently since our uh, last show. You know, uh, I went a little viral. I don't know if you guys caught that. Did you guys see that tweet where uh, we made a purchase? We made a purchase at Bitcoin Mom's dispensary, and uh, man, the thing went nuts. <coughs> dude, <coughs> pass the Bitcoin, dude. <laughs> For sure, man. This is uh, this is an awesome little story. Let me pull up my notes here. So yeah, after our last episode, I needed to pick up some of my medicine. You guys know, but I'll fill everyone else in just in case they don't know. The fact is I use uh, cannabis on a regular basis to control my stress-induced seizure disorder from PTSD related to my time in service. Now, cannabis is a medicine that I take seriously, and it has saved my life. I'm dead serious on that fact. And it's actually a very powerful medicine for an array of uses. And outside of Bitcoin, it's another passion of mine. I really think it has the capability to help turn our country around with healthcare. Similar to the way Bitcoin is helping individuals not really need the assistance of a bank anymore. If it was publicly available, we'd see a lot more healthy people out there mentally, which helps encourage the physical. All right. Now, 
and you guys know I've been running this Bitcoin meetup here in Boulder for going on 14 months now. It's really a nice little group of people in a nice little town. We were very fortunate that a while back, Brooke, the Bitcoin mom and her husband, Bill, came into town and they really helped rejuvenate the area with a renewed interest in Bitcoin. When they first moved here, there was this uh, moment of spontaneity, which came around where it became known that this uh, dispensary downtown was available for purchase as well as their subsidiaries. It really captured the interest of Brooke and Bill. And there was a long period of bated breath wondering if this deal would go through. Finally, just last week, the Bitcoin family took over this amazing little spot here in downtown Boulder called Helping Hands Herbals and another spot in Lyons called the Bud Depot. We can see from the first link in the show notes that on January 25th, Bitcoin Mom posted to Twitter, quote, Hey, at Crypto Graffiti, we took ownership of our dispensaries this morning. First order of business, hang your Silk Road print. And we can see in those pictures there that uh, the nice little, you know, this, the print hanging up in the shop. And I'll tell you, it looks great up on the wall. And Brooke and Bill, they really know the significance of this shop, Bitcoin, and the histories these markets have created. They understand these things. So they absolutely are looking at this with the right eyes and are seeing ways to help the cannabis industry and build out the Bitcoin network. It's an amazing development here on the ground, and I was extremely lucky to be the first customer to purchase some cannabis with Bitcoin. We made that little video clip for the occasion and posted it to Twitter. To my surprise, I checked it this morning, and we are over, well over 80,000 people have viewed that video. And the other analytics are insane. And I think it shows this uh, renewed interest in this idea of what's possible with using Bitcoin for cannabis on the legal side of the spectrum of this industry. Cannabis and Bitcoin were always a perfect fit, but it's hard to have the networks and relationships in place to build out the above board independent banking system needed to achieve success in this industry. Here in Colorado, all that all those pieces are starting to line up. All right. So the tweet I posted yesterday says or not yesterday. But I'm sorry. It's in, uh, it's in the last show on when I guess it was Sunday. Yeah. Quote history made. No, it's no not pizza. It's the first Bitcoin cannabis it's the first cannabis Bitcoin transaction at Bitcoin Mom's new dispensary, end quote. And it really did feel historic. And I think over the span of time, we will, it will prove to actually be a historical event. Now, you might say I'm being a little overdramatic, but I don't think so. Over Bitcoin's history, it has been, it has been those who not only just take risk, but also recognize Bitcoin's value proposition and are willing to build out slow organic growth who are the most successful in this space. The first transaction was done the old school way, just a laminated QR code. But there are plans to keep building this out. Like I'm saying, it's a slow organic growth that will take time to get everyone up to speed and find best practices for Bitcoin settlement. This was just the first step with many more to go. Brooke and Bill are the parents to our friend Jack Mallers, who is developing the Lightning Network point of sale we talked about last episode. Well, he tweeted in response to this transaction, quote, would be awfully cool if someone helped the unbanked marijuana industry get onboarded onto Bitcoin and the Lightning Network with no trusted third party so they can no so they can no longer be censored and denied financial services, close quote. Which right on, Jack, that's what I'm talking about. We have everybody on the ground that we need who have an aligned view on the progress of Bitcoin and finding ways to expand on that. I'm really excited about the possibility of being able to work with Jack and getting this new point of sale implemented. That's a little down the road, but for now, 
there's still plenty to do. And it's so fun just thinking about the possibilities and working on it. I've got another link down in the show notes where Bitcoin Mom discusses Bill's idea of a novelty of a novel loyalty program called MARS, which stands for Merchant Adoption Rebate System. It's quite simple, really. If you made a purchase and the price goes down, good for you. You got the most possible value for your Bitcoin. Now, if the price goes up after you've purchased something at our shop with Bitcoin, no worries. Bring back your receipt that will have the day and time stamped on it. And we'll refund back half of the half of that rise in store credit to where you could get more items from our store based on the price rise. And we'll split that risk with you. So these are like interesting little ideas and thought processes, as well as just like the idea of like, how are you going to train people up? How are you going to convince customers? All these ideas are very interesting to think about. So I know there were many Bitcoin cannabis transactions in the past and that there are Bitcoin cannabis merchants out there now. But I'll tell you something unique to this situation is Brooke, Bill, and Jack. They're the most down-to-earth Bitcoiners I've met, and they get this ecosystem. They understand censored markets, and they understand how we can make this these ecosystems work for each other. Another advantage we have is our newly elected governor, Jared Polis, who also takes a positive stance on both these markets. This is the beginning of something beautiful here in Colorado. I hope you guys can come visit sometime and spend a little sat at the shop. All above board, of course. So that's Helping Hands Herbals in Boulder and the Bud Depot in Lyons. And let's help support this new Bitcoin economic sandbox. So, uh, yeah, it's been an incredible experience ever since this tweet. Like, I really have seen a huge response and an overwhelming positive you know, response. And, I mean, like, there was some misunderstandings in the tweet, but... To be honest, like I'm saying, if you look at the bigger scope of all this, who all is involved, where these things are going, I mean, it is history in the making. This is not just some, uh, you know, random thought. I mean, this was, I mean, this very, I'm very excited to be here on the ground, man. So uh, what did you guys uh, think of this whole thing? Did y'all get to man- like manage a view on what's going on here with this whole uh, tweet and everybody's response to it? I know, man. Like why why would a business that like banks won't work with need like Bitcoin, man? See, this is where we've got to break this stigma. To be honest, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be making half fake jokes this whole segment. I can't <laughs> <myself>. <laughs> All right, well. I'll tell you, man, like it really is crazy being here on the ground. There's a lot of work to be done. I mean, there's people that are locals that have grown up in this region and I've seen these stigmas sort of stick around. And I mean, as someone like I've seen some things in the chat here where, you know, people are wondering if I'm somehow invested in any of this. Like, look, I am like absolutely 100 percent in on all this, not because of any sort of financial gain or anything like that. It's because. I have experienced this situation where I was told to take medicine for eight years of my life that wrecked my life. I couldn't do anything. I wasn't able to leave my apartment. And it was awful. It took me breaking a stigma in my head to say, you know what? This is a plant and it can be treated as a medicine if you use it right. All these things in life can be used for bad or good. And this is something grown naturally from the ground. And you're going to say, oh, this sounds hippity dippity. But I'm going to tell you, it literally saved my life. That's not a joke. I mean, like it gave me a better quality of life to where if I had a nightmare last night, I can wake up. 
I can take my medicine and today's going to be okay. You know what? Last night was last night. Today's today. It'll be okay. Let's keep moving forward. That's a thought process I didn't have with those other medicines. And that's a thought process a lot of people are stuck out there with. And so this is something where I feel, and, and I'm telling you, we got to break stigmas here on the ground. There's laws that have to be rewritten. And there's not just in the can, in the crypto and Bitcoin industry, but in the cannabis industry. You know, I mean, these laws are about to sunset. It's time we start talking to people and we start breaking stigmas and we really start building out these things that are going to help people become more independent of, and be able to step away from this gigantic system that just tries to, you know, it tries to bleed off what it can. And in that, the incentives don't say, let this person get healthy. And so I think we should just make this publicly available to where people can come to their own conclusions on this. And Funyuns, man. Funyuns. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we'll see that stigma break. It's all right, though. I think it's funny still. Hey, dude. Hey. I'm quoting one of the most classic, timeless movies in 20th century America. Don't you shit on that movie. <laughs> it really wasn't great. So all you guys out there, come to Boulder, you know, come to Colorado, you know, bring your Bitcoin. Let's work on this. But yeah, in all seriousness, though, this is definitely a business in a market where it makes a lot of sense to start integrating with Bitcoin. I mean, aside from some like state level credit unions, it is pretty much impossible for these businesses to actually get any kind of banking relationship. And that comes with all kinds of risks. I mean, like it comes with the cost of having to deal with security because they wind up dealing with a lot of cash and have to sit on a lot of cash, you know, businesses that aren't cash heavy. I generally see kind of hacking around and finding roundabout ways of doing things like billing, uh, debit card purchases as ATM withdrawals to kind of get around uh, being associated with a cannabis business and then giving somebody change. And then, you know, especially for cash heavy businesses, like it's not, not so much recently, but initially after legalization in a number of states, there were still federal raids on what were ostensibly legal businesses in the state. And so, especially with, you know, a business where you're sitting on mostly cash, you do run the risk of a federal agency coming in and pretty much seizing the entire proceeds of your business. And I mean, like just all around with all of these issues, like Bitcoin does something to kind of solve all of these problems. You're right, man. I mean, that is one of those aspects of this where I don't think people understand you. You're around here. You can see it. There's Brinks trucks driving around everywhere. And um, as someone that's, you know, served and, you know, had to deal with security and operational security. I mean, like I just sort of always observe these things. I mean, these guys are working routines, routines you lax. When you lax, people look for weakness. When they look for weakness, maybe they find it. And then all of a sudden, maybe we have like a terrible thing going on in the middle of the streets. So because somebody sees all this, you know, easily available value that they could just gobble up all this fiat 
And, um, you know, that's, it's not just like, uh, yeah, it's not just a risk for the dispensary and for the people carrying around the cash. It's like just a risk for the general public in the area. And that sort of thing can be, uh, we could take that externality out of the situation. And like you're saying, you know, I've seen, I've personally witnessed uh, police units from other neighboring states coming into our state, harassing dispensary employees, trying to take bad IDs. I mean, it was us. I, I witnessed this guy like harass this employee for 10 minutes saying like, you need to let me back there. I need my medicine. This ID is good. You know, just yelling. And the, when as soon as he left, the dispensary people I was friends with, they told me they had gotten busted in a sting operation earlier that morning from somebody with a very similar ID. And as somebody that, you know, witnessed people coming and going, these guys, they looked like cops. It looked like cops and the situation smelled funny and I haven't seen another experience like that, but I mean, I've witnessed those things happen and I I'm not all day in that dispensary. I'm sure those things happen on kind of a regular basis. And these dispensaries are all up to the whims of licensing and these things, uh, you know, they, we need some way to push back. And basically the way this whole value system is routed right now is, I mean, eventually these cash gets back into banks, which banks lobby for these law enforcements to, you know, I mean, there's just too much interest against it with private prisons, pharmaceutical industries. You know, this has to be routed around. Yeah. I mean, you know, just, you know, the, the security issue, like, you know, I'm, I'm no stranger to Colorado. I've been out there quite a few times at this point. And I mean, half the dispensaries I've been to out there, there are literally ex-military operating security. Like the front door requires the security guard to clear you and buzz you in. The back area where you actually like purchase something has a solid steel security door where you have to be buzzed in. And like all of this kind of shit is the result of just large amounts of cash being on the premises, which introduces the risk of robbery. I mean, if you look at the an equivalent business, a liquor store, I mean, that's that's insane. Like when, when the fuck was the last time you walked into a liquor store with a military security guard with multiple layers of security doors you had to be buzzed through? I mean, the, the, the fact that that is even necessary in a business like this is just beyond insane. Yeah, you're right. There's so many different aspects where we have to uh, break the uh, break these stigmas. I mean, because uh, I really think if we start to allow public consumption and we start to allow people to sort of experience it without having to this idea of like, what am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. I'll grab this. I'll go back to my hotel room. I'll hide and I'll come out and I'll take a walk later. It's like, let's just just come in, take a puff, go back out, take a walk, and then let us know later if you want some and we'll bring it by. That sort of thing needs to happen to where people can become a lot more comfortable with the situation. And um, like I'm saying, there's a lot to build out here. It's interesting. It's fascinating stuff to work on. And uh, yeah, I hope we can keep building it out. I, I know we're going to keep building it out. So I hope, you know, you guys can help us build it out. Yeah, and the thing that was most interesting to me that I saw Bitcoin Mom tweet about, um, John Light asked how they deal with the price volatility in Bitcoin. And she actually tweeted out this very long thread explaining uh, it's like a customer reward or customer loyalty system. Um, I don't know. She, do you guys think I should read that out? Because I think that was pretty interesting how they handled yeah. that. 
you know, I mean, like, I just sort of quickly summarize it. It'd be good if you could read it out real quick. Yeah, so she says um, this is something that uh, Bill came up with. It just, she says it struck him at hap a happy hour. Uh, and every, anyone's free to use it. She says, uh, most Bitcoiners regret spending their Bitcoin at lower prices after watching it rise year over year. For example, the porch furniture we bought from Overstock for four Bitcoin in 2014. We all learned back then that merchant adoption wasn't the way to expand Bitcoin adoption. Most merchants cashed out their Bitcoin for fiat via payment processors. They didn't want to be exposed to the Bitcoin price drop. This dumped BTC back in the market. Merchants need to pay their vendors and employees, etc., in fiat and can't hold Bitcoin for long unless they're diehard hodlers like we are and are willing to take the risk of Bitcoin going up and down. Uh, with Bill's Mars program, Merchant Adoption Rebate, Adoption Rebate System, feel free to steal that too, we as a merchant will offer a way for customers to benefit, benefit from either a Bitcoin price drop or rally. If the price drops, hey, good for you, you spent your Bitcoin on something you wanted before the price dropped. If the price rises, then we will share your pain of having spent your Bitcoin. Save your receipts from your Bitcoin purchases. When you come back in, we will monitor the current price of Bitcoin and split the difference 50-50. You can use that difference to buy free products from us. This way, we as a merchant benefit by holding the Bitcoin you spent with us, and you benefit by staying a loyal customer and getting future discounts if the Bitcoin price goes up. So I thought that was a pretty interesting way of because like merchant adoption is there's like so many hurdles to that. And people are frustrated when merchants aren't either aren't willing to adopt Bitcoin for this reason or they do adopt Bitcoin or, you know, even not even merchants, just charities even like, for example, we're seeing the Tor project being asked, like, why are you using BitPay when you're when you're an anonymity uh, software nonprofit? Um, and so, yeah, this is a big problem because most of them just, they don't want to deal with that. And so they automatically convert it into fiat either after they receive it directly or they purposely use a service that automatically converts it for them. So that's, I think that's a good system to have. Absolutely. I mean, I remember when she uh, first told me about it and I was just sort of blown away by just how it was just. It's all the systems are there, you know, it's just this interesting little way to put it together to where you get people to incentivize the uh, the merchant aspect and, you know, trying to actually hold Bitcoin. And this is one of those where, for sure, if we could get some other aspects of this uh, cannabis industry to start, you know, uh, like vendors to merchants and uh, creating this sort of closed loop economy, that would be incredible, not just for the cannabis market, but for Bitcoin. So super excited for uh, bitcoin mom and bill and jack and everybody here in boulder and what's going on so uh yeah i just wanted to share this story with you guys mm -hmm. and uh audio tweaker i think is having a little trouble understanding this in the chat so just want to kind of clarify that the business only actually loses anything if the price goes down if if the Bitcoin price appreciates, they're sitting on extra money versus the product they let go of. And they're only giving back half of that to the customer in terms of rebate or rebates or store credit. So the the price can skyrocket all day and they're still coming out ahead. If they sit on or if they sell $20 worth of product and the price goes up and they're sitting on $30 of Bitcoin and give $5 back to the customer, they still have the profit from that original $20 plus an extra 
and the customer is getting something out of that. So like if the price goes up, they're not losing anything. They're actually making more money and just kind of sharing a little bit of that with the customer. It's an awesome idea. And like the link to the thread that discusses this is in the show notes. And, uh, you know, Brooke says like, hey, you know, this idea is out there, you know, use it. And I'm sure like if, uh, you know, you have some more questions about it, she wouldn't, you know, hesitate to answer that. And, uh, you know, there is a discount for if you purchase with Bitcoin. I forgot about that. So I'm not sure exactly on the percent. I think it's 10 percent, but I'm not 100 percent on that. But you will get a uh, discount just for using the Bitcoin, too. Mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah, this is a nice step forward and I help other businesses in the area start looking at this because, you know, like I said, this is a really rounded way to deal with most of the, the problems that these businesses face that are unique to this market. Absolutely, man. Alrighty. So I guess we ready to slide along. Yeah, man. What else is going on with this, uh, vulnerability? Well, uh, today is a historic day, people. Today is the first ever security vulnerability in a CoinKite Bitcoin hardware product. <gasps> what? Oh my God, the cold cards fuck quick. Anybody using a cold card, all your Bitcoins are at risk. Ah! <laughs> Don't go wreck it yet so what's up uh well uh <laughs> not much really uh I, I hope at least one person out there panicked when i when i uh had my fun with everybody but um you know honestly in in the grand scheme of things like this vulnerability is not really a threat to anybody unless you're literally using a four digit passcode and i by that i mean two digits on the first half and then two digits on the second half because the cold card is designed to have uh one half of a pin entered and then it gives you a security check um that's unique to that device in the uh, form of two mnemonic words and you're supposed to check that before entering the second half of your pin so that you don't enter that into a malicious or a faulty device and give an attacker your pin. And especially this vulnerability compared to all of the other wallets out there, like the, the ledger, the Trezor, the keep key. I mean, this, this is nothing compared to the types of exploits that have been found on those devices. So pretty much what happened here, uh, somebody named Lazy Ninja, and in their uh, or CoinKite's blog post about this, they linked to his Twitter account. He developed a hardware device that actually man in the middles the interactions between the main microprocessor and the secure element that actually manages your uh, secrets and your Bitcoin keys. And pretty much what's going on here is when you enter a pin, it sends the hash to the secure element to check against what it has stored before it will unlock itself. And then it responds with uh, a one byte answer 
to tell the main microprocessor um, this matched and is legitimate or it's an incorrect pin. And so there is a security lockout on the cold card that's supposed to time limit pin entries, you know, like the, the Trezor and the, the Ledger have the time delays if you enter the wrong pin that'll slowly increase um, uh, doubling each incorrect entry. And there's a similar mechanism on the cold card, but it's handled by the main microprocessor and not the secure element. And so what this man in the middle attack would allow is you pretty much intercept the, the trace connection between these two chips with the device that Lazy Ninja developed. And you intercept the response from the secure element to the main microprocessor and then have it tell the, um, the main microprocessor that the pin try was good, even if it's not. And that way it resets the time delay and there is no delay introduced in trying new pins. And so Lazy Ninja is saying it takes around, um, where was it? I think five to 15 seconds per pin try. And so far um, it's pretty much just him manually entering the pins. Um, it could probably be sped up, although I don't think to too much of a, a speed up by some kind of automated device um, touching the uh, the buttons and entering the pin automatically. But it's still not giving any kind of access to anything stored on the secure element until the correct pin is found. And the reason I say this is not really that big of a deal at all is if you're following their recommendations and using an eight-digit pin in total broken up into a four uh four number first part of the pin and then a four number second part it would take 15 years at these rates to go through all of the pin combinations and even if you're only using a six digit pin it would take 60 days so unless you're completely ignoring all of their advice in terms of pin length um there there is no way that this presents any kind of serious risk. Um, and it, it also requires obviously physical access to the device. So in order for this to happen, if you're using an eight digit pin, you would literally need to have your cold card um, stolen and not notice that for 15 years. If you were using a six digit pin, you would have to have it stolen and not notice it was gone for two months. And in both of those cases, there is well more than enough time to simply import your seed to something else and move your coins, at which point if your pin is actually cracked, it, its access to the keys are effectively worthless. And so what they've done here is um, two things, actually, in the new Mark II cold card to mitigate this, um, a hardware solution and a firmware solution. And so what they've done is actually updated the, the interaction process between the main microprocessor and the secure element so that instead of just a one byte response um, that could be intercepted by a man in the middle attack, it is actually doing a hashed um, challenge back and forth using the pairing secret between the main microprocessor and the secure element. So even if something was able to intercept it, 
it's not something that you can just um, give a false answer to because you don't have access to the pairing secret used between the chips. And as well, they have altered the hardware slightly so that intercepting the actual trace between the chips to perform this would actually require removing the secure element physically from the cold card and using a socket so that you can get access to the trace um, and the interactions between the two chips. And this would be very delicate solder work and the slightest fuck up would completely fry the secure element and destroy all of the information that the attacker was trying to gain access to. And so there is in this blog post a little bit of a more detail in terms of the firmware and the hardware fix, as well as links to all the relevant information in terms of the source code for its firmware and a little bit more technical details in terms of what's actually going on and interactions between the chips. But ultimately, if you are using a secure pin, this is no threat to you. It's nothing you need to worry about. And it, it again requires actually physically stealing the device. As well, it's being mitigated to an even heavier degree in the new version of the cold card. And so honestly, like, I am really impressed overall just by CoinKite in general because this is, I think, getting close to the year mark that the cold card has been released, unless my memory has completely failed me. And only this one vulnerability has been found in it so far security-wise, and it is absolutely nowhere near the kind of vulnerabilities discovered in the other hardware devices out there. And it's been four years now since the open dime has been released. And there is still yet to be found a demonstrable attack or security flaw in that. So really compared to a lot of the other companies in this space producing hardware wallets, I mean, the, the, this company's designs are holding up phenomenally. The types of vulnerabilities we've seen in the ledger in the Trezor are just atrocious and with much more ease, just allow an attacker to pretty much gain complete access to everything they would need to steal somebody's coins. And like, really, I do have to give CoinKite and Rodolfo and Peter a lot of props for this because, you know, even despite this vulnerability being found, the, the practicality of really using this is almost non-existent unless the user is intentionally ignoring all of the security advice they're giving in terms of how to use the device. Yeah, that sounds like a uh, extremely small attack surface because if you're taking the uh, time to, uh, you know, pre-order these, you know, get these coin kite cold cards and, um, you know, you're doing that because you like the added security it affords you. And I doubt there's many of these people out there that would be you know, skimping down on the security with like weak pins. And that's uh, just pretty much like the main takeaway, I think is just like always be sure you're, uh, you know, following these uh, directions as far as, you know, the way that you're supposed to be setting these up as well as, uh, you know, just how great it is to keep adding a little extra digit onto your password. I mean, I always tell people pretty good idea to keep your passwords about 16, 24 characters. I mean, like 12 is the lowest. It's just a good way to keep the, uh, crackers at bay 
because of the amount of time and effort it would take spent on that. And uh, it just wouldn't be worth it. And um, yeah, Rodolfo and CoinKite, those guys are doing awesome as far as working it out to make sure that the uh, from the production line to the customer, you know, they're they've got transparent bags. They have the transparent uh, plastic, you know, uh, carbon, whatever the material is, you know, it's transparent. So you can see the circuitry. You can see like uh, straight from the uh, assembly line. It's still really hard to uh, get that all worked out to where from the assembly line to the consumer, you know, it's absolutely trusted. But, you know, they've done just about the best job I've seen anybody do. And um, I imagine it's just it's great to see them like already sort of putting out this uh, this new cold card with a with a fix for this. So, yeah, great job, Rodolfo. And, uh, you know, really been. Yeah, I've been still got, you know, a few open dimes sitting around. And I mean, like I haven't been happier with them. So great job over there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, like some of the vulnerabilities we've seen in the ledger, the treasure just pretty much allow you to trivially in a ridiculously short amount of time with access to the device, just dump the entire mnemonic seat where here you're talking literally a range of two months to 15 years. If you are following the actual use advice to do anything with this. And I mean, it's just, <laughs> like honestly, if if your coins were stolen due to this being exploited, you honestly deserve it. Because I mean that just shows such a negligence and lack of attention in paying attention to your coins and their security that it, it, it's just inexcusable with that time that type of time required to exploit this that you would not notice that and move your coins somewhere else. That's where it's like got to be Nero because these guys, I mean, like I wanted one and, you know, it's just like I'm still, you know, going to eventually get one. It's uh, one of those things where it's all about a measure of where your uh, security is and everything. And right now I just um, I really want it just to actually keep practicing with it, even though I don't really have the accrued value to really uh, be necessary yet. But I think that uh, it's definitely something that I'd love to fiddle around with. And yeah, so. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> All right, Janine, what's going on with Fidelity? Well, I'm pretty sure you're all surprised that I pick a story about um, custody because you all know that that's one of my favorite topics. Uh, yesterday, Bloomberg yeah. published. <laughs> yesterday, Bloomberg published an article uh, that Fidelity Digital Asset Services LLC, which is a subset, I, I'm not sure where exactly in the hierarchy or the business classification it is, but it's a subset of Fidelity Investments, uh, which actually started uh, mining Bitcoin in 2015. Uh, and they announced, or well, no, they did not announce. Um, Bloomberg announced that. According to some people, they are planning to launch a Bitcoin custody service in the first quarter of 2019. And of course, uh, Bloomberg, it's kind of funny because Bloomberg had this line that according to three people with knowledge of the matter, and then later, according to employees of three firms that spoke with Fidelity in the past several weeks and asked not to be named discussing plans that are still private. Um, so yeah, more pointless sourcing that's not really sourcing. Um, anyway, this story caught my attention because uh, Dr. Bob McElrath, who's been in Bitcoin since at least 2011, I think, is the vice president of blockchain system architecture at Fidelity. 
and he's currently doing a bit of a European tour, at least, I don't know if it's maybe broader than Europe, but he's doing a European tour to talk about Bitcoin vault mechanisms, uh, which is a combination of cold storage, time locks, uh, clawback conditions, things like that. Uh, and the idea of a vault in that, in the terminology that he means is that it's distinct from cold storage. It's more describing theft protection mechanisms in the process of transferring Bitcoin or Ether to another party, such as a customer, than it is about static storage, which is what we mean when we say cold storage. So when you think of a vault, it's more about, uh, you know, secure transfer mechanisms, at least what I saw. And most of his presentation, um, because uh, yours truly attended one of these, uh, was about a comparison in the pros and cons of various proposals to provide this kind of functionality, such as Lau's um, op push TX data. Uh, he also had an idea for pre-signed transactions where you delete the keys after you sign the transaction. Um, then there was also O'Connor's op check sig from Stack. And then there was hiding alternative spending paths or conditions, which is what Taproot and Mass do. Uh, and those are probably the favorites uh, on the current core, uh, Bitcoin core roadmap. If I remember correctly, all of them can be implemented as a soft work. I know that Taproot and Mass can. Um, I'm not sure about the others. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, so I did attend and I'm happy to say that I was the only person in the room when he asked, did anyone, does anyone know what MAST is? I was the only person to raise my hand. Uh, (laughs) So not only was it, um, his presentation was an interesting summary of those proposals, but he also talked about which ones would be preferred or not preferred in a custodial type situation. For example, his pre-signed transaction proposal where you delete the keys to uh, make it that there's a much lower possibility or uh, probability, if you did it perfectly, probably not, of someone being able to hack you and access those keys uh, would probably not be accepted under the current practices of most financial institutions because they have a policy of keeping everything pretty much forever. Uh, At the very least, they would have to keep the key until until it is confirmed that the customer has received funds or the other party has received funds which would kind of defeat the added security of deleting the key before that. Um, but yeah, that's why this story did not surprise me because, you know, when uh, when a company starts sending out people to, you know, do presentations about this kind of thing, you know, that's kind of a signal that, hey, this is close to be uh, close to launch or it's being launched or in the process of being planned for launch. And so even though I pretty much despise custodians for my own purposes, um, I suppose if they are going to continue to exist in some form, these mechanisms would be useful. So if you'd be interested in hearing more about these proposals that could possibly be relevant to custodial type situations or non-custodial even, um, Aaron Verdum from Bitcoin Magazine recently wrote an article about Taproot and Mast. you're not too technical. He breaks yeah, it down. We're, uh, we're actually going to be covering those a little later. Just and we uh, will break it down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we will break it down for you. And uh, Bob McElrath will be giving the same talk uh, in Munich for the Bitcoin Tech Days mini conference on February 12th, which is a free event run by the Munich Bitcoin Meetup. Uh, Noparo will also be there representing ZK Snacks and Wasabi Wallet to talk about the history and current state of privacy in Bitcoin. So 
yeah, sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm really glad to see, you know, fight or at least the the rumors of Fidelity doing this with a, a lot of circumstantial evidence to back it up. Just kind of for the same reason that I want to see like a large swath of ETFs rather than just a small group. I mean, we have backed kind of building in a custodial product uh, with their overall platform. Uh, BitGo is trying to step or has stepped into the custodial space. Like there are a number of other companies and I would much rather have <clears throat> a large group of companies doing something like this and kind of spread that uh, the custodianship around and amongst a number of different entities rather than just have, you know, one or two large concentrations with, you know, a form of regulatory capture kind of entrenching them as a monopoly. Because <clears throat> the more this ecosystem matures and the more we see institutional money flow in, I mean, that's going to start sucking up some fraction of the Bitcoins in this space. And I would much rather have that as widely distributed as possible among a number of different entities rather than just have a few just growing in terms of concentration of Bitcoins in the ecosystem. Because that the, the more concentrated the ownership of coins becomes, the more influence that that small number of entities has in the consensus process. And it especially makes me happy to see them actually sinking this through on a technical level and not just thinking like you make a key, you put that in a vault somewhere and call it a day. Like they are actually digging through the full functionality that this system allows and seeing how they can best use everything it can do. Absolutely, Ben, like uh, let's spread that risk out a little bit. I mean, um... You know, we do see all these sort of products coming up and they're also talking about this uh, first quarter 2019. And um, they're all sort of talking about this uh, ability to create these cold storage situations that are, you know, very distinct in their ability to keep funds protected and, you know, at the same time, honor rights and everything. And, uh, you know, we've been seeing that discussed in Wyoming. And like you said, South Dakota, Gemini wants these sort of things built out. And um, yeah, it's good also just to sort of spread out the, you know, not just the, uh, the risk of, but also these, uh, the economic weight of these nodes, like, cause, uh, we did see that in the past, right. Where these, uh, few economic nodes kind of got together and said, Hey, we want the network to do this. And that was a, that was a fight. So, um, it'd be good to kind of keep that spread out, spread out and that, uh, surface spread. Yeah. Pretty wide. And, um, yeah, that Bob McElrath, he's a smart guy. I've, I've been, I've always, uh, you know, reading his tweets being like, man, this guy is on top of some stuff. And so uh, I'd be interested to see what he's got set up there and uh, see how it works. Yeah. I actually want to quickly, I might've lost it. Uh, where did I put it? I might've lost it. Um, he made an interesting tweet uh, a few, I think it was a few weeks ago about, um, I guess he was at another conference and he made a comment about, uh, oh my God, I can't type and talk at the same time. Uh, he made a comment at a conference that people are getting too excited about um, stable coins and that stable coins is the wrong term. He said, you should call them crypto backed uh, or no fiat backed crypto instruments because they're not really stable. He's like, 
stable coins are only stable if your time horizon is really short. So pretty good. Yeah, that's right. Bitcoin is the ultimate stable coin. Mm -hmm. All right, so All right. what is up next, Rick? Yeah, let's talk about the ancient stable coin and what Van Eck is thinking about with their withdrawal proposal that we talked about last episode. All right. So you guys remember a couple episodes back, actually, we talked about this uh, Van Eck pulling their filing for the Bitcoin ETF due to a government shutdown, saying, quote, we will refile and re-engage. So, well, now the CEO of the company, John Van Eck, is claiming investors are flocking to gold. He says about the current market condition, quote, I do think that Bitcoin pulled a little bit of demand away from gold in 2017. Interestingly, we just pulled 4,000 Bitcoin investors and their number one investment for 2019 is actually gold. So gold lost to Bitcoin and now it's going the other way, close quote. Which to be honest, it's not too surprising people are moving into gold. Like we're saying, it's the ancient stable coin and which is an economic, you know, this is all an economic reflex to times of market strife. And we are abundant in that at the moment. The whole U.S.-China trade war, Venezuela hyperinflation running rampant, Iran and Russia searching for routes around U.S. sanctions, multiple wars, and all on top of the growing debt bubbles all over the world. So that's a few reasons why we are seeing speculators move into precious metals. Another being the chart levels look like they are at generational lows, which has everyone trying to capitalize on the possible move upward. But to be honest... I don't know if they're going to get that. I, I mean, like, you know, possibly gold has historically served very well during these times of economic uncertainty, but it's hard not to look at the situation through the lens of present day politics. Venezuela has 1.2 billion in gold locked up in a vault in London controlled by the United States, which effectively makes it worthless to them. That situation is not unique and could be repeated for multiple countries. And if macroeconomic markets come to a grind from a bursting debt bubbles, while gold, gold can't be moved because of political strife. I don't know. It could tank the gold market. I mean, silver probably would be all right. But, you know, like we're talking about in just this uh, last story, the idea of economic mode sort of like accruing all the value, like they can easily sort of decide the roadmap. So anyway, it looks like this chart and market action has everyone spreading out their position to try and weather this upcoming storm. What do you guys think? Are precious metals like gold still a good idea? Well, I think it's going to be quite a while before a large amount of investors uh, start moving away from precious metals. It's just it, that is a large network effect and market history to overcome. But I mean, I, I think it's kind of uh, telling to a degree the way Vanak is trying to paint it as Bitcoin investors moving into gold immediately follows after their ETF proposal was uh, removed from consideration by the SEC. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to know who those 4,000 polled Bitcoiners are. I mean, you know, there were a lot of speculators coming in in 2017, and usually those guys always sort of keep their risks spread out. So it wouldn't be too surprising to me that they've always sort of been spread like that, but maybe now they're just more so on that you know, on that end of the spectrum. So, yeah, not much out of the out of this other than just speculation. I just, I, th I think this is, 
Vanek trying to push people towards their gold ETF products as things are not looking good in the, the short term for any kind of Bitcoin product uh, listed by them. But, you know, that's kind of to be expected. It's they're in it to make money. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, just to, we'll see whether they could do it. I mean, you know, that's like we're saying, this whole political situation with uh, Venezuela and their gold and what all's going on. And I mean, uh, you know, Iran and Russia, like uh, maybe we should just tear right into that next story, Janine, about Iran. What's their, their method for getting all around this? Well, I have to say part of this story is a, it's it's not as exciting as it may sound because um, people are saying it's a reversal of the ban. That's not exactly true because if you if you read it or read the translations, um, as I mentioned at the start of the show, one of the big news items in the last few days is that Iran has, well, they're saying reversed, I would say relaxed, uh, their previous ban on cryptocurrencies through the publication of a draft regulatory framework. And according to Al Jazeera, the announcement was even made on the eve of the annual two-day electronic banking and payment systems conference, which kicked off in Tehran on Tuesday with the theme, Blockchain Revolution. Oh, goody, they've already been infected with the other B word. Um, the central bank announced an intent to not only recognize Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, but central bank cryptocurrencies, hint, because tokens and various related activities, including exchange bureaus, minting operate, uh, mining operations and things like that. Uh, so if you've been paying attention to, you know, the fact that the U.S. has been pretty uh, heavy handed with the economic sanctions, you can see why they may be in the mood to relax some of those conditions. However, uh, they did make clear um the central bank did that, uh, quote, using global currencies as methods of payment inside Iran is still prohibited. So, yeah, and I let me see. Furthermore, in an effort to prevent more value loss um, from the real, it bars Iranians from holding large amounts of global cryptocurrencies in the same way um, that they are officially prohibited from holding more than 10,000 euros. So it's not exactly that much of a relaxation, definitely not a reversal because uh, still a lot of restrictions. And basically it, it sounds more like this is geared toward businesses. So they might want some businesses to be able to operate out of Iran and do this kind of thing. But the citizens themselves are going to not really be able to use those services or they'll be able to use them in a very limited way. Now, obviously there's going to be some people who are going to keep doing it anyway, as they already are. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, I think they even quoted a trader in the Al Jazeera article who said, uh, we are hoping the central bank stance would not again restrict the use of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in any way, but it doesn't look like, I mean, he sound, apparently he sounded a bit hopeful, um, but yeah, there's still restrictions. They're not gone. It just sounds like they're possibly, you know, when they say that they're, relaxing the restrictions on cryptocurrencies that's more to do with their own central bank cryptocurrency and maybe some business operations that could generate tax revenue than it is to allow individuals the freedom to use it so 
not as big of a deal as some people are taking it. So this this is more kind of following the lead of China in terms of private citizens trying to give them the ability to get some kind of investment exposure, but not use it and then capitalize yeah. on things like the, the mining migration to Iran. Yep, basically. Mm-hmm. No wonder they were offering such cheap electricity. I think it was 0. 0.06 cents. That's kind of a bummer, honestly. I, I got, you know, read the headline on this one, didn't really dig too much into the story yet. It's, uh, it's upsetting because I thought it was going to be like a full reverse in a band, like on the band to where people could have access to it. And um, yeah, I guess we are kind of seeing this alignment of uh, certain nations kind of coming together to figure out a way to allow them to have some sort of crypto economic system that uh, doesn't really allow access to the underlying value. And uh, that's upsetting to hear. But um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. These developments are going to keep going. I mean, like, geez, every day, there's every other week, it seems like we're learning something new about the way macroeconomics are changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, to a degree, though, I mean, it's, to be expected from a country like Iran. I mean, it's really, it really is just kind of a pattern at this point. Governments like that just seem to be trying to walk that line of gaining some kind of utility and benefit themselves, but doing everything they can to limit like the, the benefit and utility for their, their populace. It's, you know, a government that wants to try and stamp down and control things. I. I don't see why anybody would really expect that to change just because of Bitcoin. Yeah. So what's uh what else is going on? How else can people get access to Bitcoin now? What's going on with these fast Bitcoins? Well, this I'm actually really excited to see because I've uh I've actually been talking uh to the owner of this for quite a while while he's been building this out but um a company fast bitcoins has officially gone live in england and this is pretty much a point of sale um system where you can buy uh bitcoin vouchers uh, effectively you can go somewhere uh exchange cash um, and then get a voucher that can be redeemed online and up to a limit, I believe it's 250 pounds. All it requires is an email address to actually redeem the Bitcoin. So there is no identification required up to that limit um, to actually purchase anything. And obviously it's not really difficult in this day and age to create an email address not connected to you. So this for small sums is a very private and quick way to actually get your hands on Bitcoin. And it's actually ran by uh, Danny Brewster. Um, And I'll get a little bit more into, um, you know, his his involvement in a little bit. But Danny also um, is behind a company, AAO Global, which has uh, digital kiosks where you can buy things like prepaid cell phone minutes, Xbox Live subscriptions and other kind of digital cards and things like that. And this is also um, something that down the line is going to integrate uh, fast Bitcoin vouchers. So there are 
numerous things uh, that you can buy on these terminals. I think up to like 5,000 different things. And they're spread uh, pretty decently thick around. So this being integrated into these terminals will spread the exposure of this around even faster. And it's really, this is like, this is the kind of on-ramp that, that we need. Something that doesn't require huge hardware investments to roll out. That's very quick and, you know, agile. And most importantly, something you can use cash for that, like I said, up to a limit doesn't require identification. And the platform also allows selling, although you do have to actually register and give some personal information to sell through the platform. And the limits vary based on uh, retail locations that support fast Bitcoins um, in your area and pretty much how much cash they can actually pay out uh, for transactions. And the, the fees for this right now are 6% to buy and 3% to sell. And um, pretty much uh, registering an account and verifying information uh, will lead to lower fees. But like I said, that is completely optional like up to the, the purchase limit of 250 pounds, literally all you need is cash and an email address to redeem the voucher. And like, it's just, this is the kind of thing that can just be rolled out very fast and very widely. And it, it removes a lot of the kind of frictions that exist now with platforms like, you know, Coinbase or like even Cash App, which is pretty smooth and seamless still requires going through an identity verification, a selfie, and, you know, these kinds of things, while they're not crazy compared to all the, the nonsense you have to go through to register someplace like Coinbase or Bitfinex, it, it's still an impediment. And, like, the, this strips away pretty much all of the friction that you can. And to kind of get back to Danny, um, some people who've been around in the ecosystem for a long time probably know him, although new people might not. Uh, back in 2014, he was involved in a company called Neo and B that was attempting to pretty much build out a Bitcoin uh, bank and payment system in Cyprus during the bail-in um, that was happening around the time. And you know, this has been kind of bandied around as one of the biggest, um, you know, collapses on par with Mount Gox and the Silk Road falling um, during that era of Bitcoin. And there were a lot of people kind of accusing Danny of outright fraud, um, trying to file legal charges. And after leaving Cyprus and going back to the UK, he actually you know, met with the Cyprus police and went through an interview. And after the interview, they pretty much dropped all charges and, you know, found no evidence of, of any kind of in, intent to defraud or actual fraud. And by Danny's account, like pretty much what happened is just a huge uh, accounting error or error going on in the business that just pretty much led to everything completely falling apart. And, you know, one of the things I, I'm happy to see, you know, with fast Bitcoins, you know, going live 
is one, like this is a, a private way to actually get into Bitcoin and something that has minimized the counterparty risk as much as you can. And it's also part of the reason that he's doing this is to try and make the NEO and B investors whole. I mean, right now around 20% of the outstanding tokens have been settled one way or another. And he's going to be devoting profits from fast Bitcoins to continue to pay off investors and make them whole um, who otherwise haven't been yet. And so I, you know, I think, you know, looking at this business and the way it's structured, it's, it's a, a very secure business, a very private business and something that can expand very rapidly. And I think it really speaks a lot to his character you know, after the whole shit show with Neo and B and the way that it was received by the community that five years later, he is building this business out and intent on using the profit to actually make everybody who hasn't been already whole for the losses that they suffered through Neo and B. And, you know, I, th I really think that that's something that isn't really seen a lot in, in this ecosystem that, you know, uh, most of the the incidents like Neil and B, people just wash their hands, slide away, and really don't give a shit about the people who've actually lost money in the process. And Danny is making a real effort here to actually make them whole. And, you know, aside from that, to kind of get back to uh, two little details I glossed over real quick, um, Fast Bitcoins does actually enable um, withdrawals over Lightning Network. So you don't have to receive on-chain. You can actually receive what you purchased over Lightning too. And it is also um, partnered with BitRefill. So you can actually purchase um, fast Bitcoin vouchers through BitRefill. And for those who might be scratching their head going, why the hell would I buy a Bitcoin voucher with Bitcoin? Um, BitRefill actually supports a small number of altcoins as well. So you can kind of seamlessly and anonymously get your hand on these vouchers um, to get rid of whatever shit coins you might still be holding on to. So this is a real awesome thing to see. And I really wish Danny luck in this business succeeding and actually being able to make everybody whole from the Neo and B disaster. Right on, man. That is definitely something you don't see in this space much is somebody sticking around to create a viable option for the market that is necessary and trying to make their uh, investors whole from a uh, project that didn't go the way that was planned. And so, yeah, good job, Danny, on uh, stepping back in and doing all this. And um, I think you're right, man. I mean, the fast access to uh, Bitcoin without really having to totally KYC yourself there and um it's just a, it's a big onboarding process. And like, if you can easily buy Bitcoins without necessarily uh, having to uh, go through that much of a headache, it's definitely a good thing. And uh, yeah, like uh, it's really kind of this whole Bitcoin voucher. And I mean, like not just uh, Danny Brewster, I want to be sure on this. I saw a post from uh, John Carvalho seven hours ago, Bitcoin Aerolog saying, come work with me at BitRefill. And uh, there's a listing there for a job. So it sounds like, you know, that is another good guy working around there. So a couple of good guys. And let's talk about another good guy and another project real quick. One that I kind of bumbled through 
last episode, and I really wanted to bring it back up since we're talking about these vouchers, is that uh, program Azteco that Beautyon's been working on. And uh, Beautyon, he's uh, got this uh, podcast also on uh, the CryptoCast network called uh, Bitcoin Matters. And yeah, I just wanted to touch on this uh, voucher program and uh, who's, you know, yeah, he runs this podcast. And uh, so Azteco is also trying to make it really easy for the average person to purchase Bitcoin. It's uh, similar to phone cards that top off prepaid cell phones. It's a service that issues a 16 digit voucher to redeem your Bitcoins. And these Azteco vouchers could be sold by anyone who would like to become a vendor and has the amount for the proper bond to do so. And they could turn their point of sale into a Bitcoin voucher system. You know, like you wouldn't necessarily really need the kiosk that we're talking about here at Fast Bitcoins. But um, I don't think I don't know if there's really this lightning option available that uh, that you're talking about with Fast Bitcoins. But we'll talk to we'll see what's going on. So on top of that, you really just need a computer, Internet and a printer to begin selling these vouchers. The website is down in the show notes if you'd like to apply to be an Azteco vendor. Uh, yeah, I think these are great when it comes to onboarding people who don't have the capability of obtaining Bitcoin for one reason or another. I mean, a lot of people out there don't have these identif identification cards and they don't have the ability really to KYC themselves. And uh, also just some people really want to, uh, you know, remain, uh, keep their privacy intact. And that's something that's um, important, too. And so these voucher programs are going to be big in the future. And it's just uh, something that we should definitely keep our eye on and watch these developments go. Is there any comment on the Azteco vouchers? Yeah, no, it's a it's a nice setup. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much the same general kind of setup as fast bitcoins. It's just if you set yourself up to print the or print the vouchers, like you can sell these. And I mean, honestly, you know, I've said a lot. Whenever we've talked about ATMs, kind of spreading around, like. You know, those come with a high overhead uh, investment and the premiums on them are pretty heavy right now. And eventually that's going to start feeling the effects of competition pushing them down. And I mean, at the end of the day, things like these voucher systems, the overhead is almost non-existent compared to, you know, a, an ATM that costs thousands and thousands of dollars and can roll out a lot faster. So the, these kind of systems, when this market really starts feeling the heat of competition can go a lot further in terms of undercutting an ATM and still being able to recoup investments and make a profit in the process. So like I, you know, I'm, I'm a lot more anxious to see things like this roll out than actual physical ATMs. Yeah, definitely bring in the competition to, uh, you know, just bring the whole market up. All right. So, Let's uh, keep moving along. So we talked last episode very briefly about how Tangem had received an investment from SBI Holdings out of Japan for $15 million. Well, now it looks like Tangem is headed to the Marshall Islands to assist with the production of physical blockchain notes, quote unquote, and for the nation's planned digital currency. The islands, island nations are building out the digital currency SOV or Sovereign. And the Sovereign was announced in February of last year, and we covered this uh, developing story in episode 124, where we talked about the IMF warning the, warning the Marshall Islands that using a national cryptocurrency could disrupt their flow of economic aid, which could put a significant drag on their economy. 
since they're so reliant on Western countries. And then again, in episode 140, where we discuss the president of the island nation winning over a vote of no confidence, moving the national currency forward in discussion. So now they are moving forward and uh, the tangent cards are going to help build out this ecosystem. David Paul, the assistant minister to the president of the Marshall Islands said, quote, Tangem will help us insure all citizens, including the, those living on more remote outer islands, are able to easily and practically trans, transact using Sovereign. So, uh, yeah, this is another one of these uh, different ways to transact with Bitcoin. And, um, you know, but this is going to be their cryptocurrency, like another national cryptocurrency. It looks like they're planning on using these Tangem smart cards to uh, allow their citizens to be able to use the ecosystem and um, how exactly they're all setting this up is still kind of a mystery. But I mean, it looks like um, they're planning on setting up just like a, a stable coin called the sovereign and the, uh, but the mechanics behind it seem kind of fuzzy and uh, we'll see how it builds out, but they definitely want to take use of these uh, tangent cards. And it looks like, uh, you know, this company has been doing good here this past week, as far as like, uh, investments and people trying to pick it up and use it. That's what it looks like from here. And uh, we'll see. That's what the company's reporting. But it's like, uh, like we're saying, even since the Marshall Islands has announced that they were going to release this national cryptocurrency, there's been a lot of pushback and, you know, the developments have been kind of slow going, but they've been moving forward. So we'll keep an eye on it and see how they're going to build this out. But it looks pretty interesting. What do you uh, guys think about this little bit? Well, you know, the, the last time we kind of talked about this, I, you know, was kind of, you know, sad a little bit that they were moving into this national crypto, you know, buzz that uh, a lot of countries in tight spots are going into and not looking at things like Bitcoin directly. But, I mean, you know, I still hope that whatever they end up doing does something to help the country, but... You know, even at the end of the day, rolling out this might ease their population into Bitcoin, just being a more seamless way to actually get their hands on it. But as far as the, the rollout of the Tangum cards, I, th I think it could actually help a little. You know, like I said, the, the scaling issues with this kind of thing, on Bitcoin at least, is mostly a result of the block size the UTXO set and everybody actually trying to keep it decentralized. But in terms of a national cryptocurrency, like a lot of those factors aren't really there. And I'm sure that they're not going to have an attitude even close to Bitcoins in terms of decentralization. So something like these Tangum cards is a lot more viable in that case. And it would really give like a nice middle ground in terms of your average person can just you know verify it with a smartphone and that like people know how to trade cash around but at the same time it would also allow people to pull a currency off of it and spend it digitally so it, it would just be like a, a nice bridge in terms of like people who are tech savvy and aren't both equally mm -hmm. being mm -hmm. able to interact with something like a national cryptocurrency if the marshall islands actually goes through with it yeah, you know, I mean, it's uh, 
like we're saying, you know, there's these vouchers and all these national cryptocurrencies being formulated and everybody's kind of coming up with their own formula of what's the best route. And uh, the Marshall Islands are at a unique position in the fact that they are several islands sort of chained together in the region. And um, maybe this is the best route for them. So uh, it'll be uh, it'll be, you know, we'll, all these things are interesting to follow along and see. So just sort of how exactly it's playing out in this area or that, because, uh, yeah, I mean, this is all, you know, I guess just forward progress into this new economy that where everybody's building out. So, yeah, there's uh, there's that. What else was next here? It looks like, oh, man, going to dig you down into this uh, these roots, huh? Mm-hmm. So I know we have, you know, gone a, a lot into mast uh, on the show previously, but we haven't ever really gone like in depth into taproot and graft root. And considering it was kind of a slow news day and uh, Aaron Von Wordham recently wrote these articles, so they were kind of circulating around and figured go into that a little bit. So, um, you know, MAST itself um, is actually something that's been being discussed as long back as like 2013. I remember uh, a lot of posts by Peter Todd and some others on Bitcoin talk. So this is like MAST itself is a pretty old concept in terms of, you know, upgrades to Bitcoin that have been being considered. Although the big issue with it is privacy in that spending anything from a regular mast uh, script using pay to script hash reveals that it is a mast transaction and kind of sets it apart from all others into a much smaller anonymity set. And one of the, the ways that historically was considered to deal with this was just have every transaction uh, be a masked one, even if there's only one way to spend it and just have the normal spending branch and then kind of a fake uh, second branch that doesn't actually have anything. It just makes it look like it might and kind of blend things together. But that would make all transactions slightly bigger because you would actually have to publish that Merkle proof when you go to spend the transaction. And, you know, despite you know, hardcore privacy advocates maybe being okay with that. A lot of people aren't going to be okay in the long term with paying that extra fee just to help others' privacy. And so Greg Maxwell came up with the concepts of taproot and graftroot building off of some of the things possible with Schnorr signatures. And so first, uh, taproot kind of builds off a mathematical property of Schnorr um, where you can modify things like a public key and then be able to modify a private key in the same way and still have them match and be verifiable together and modify signatures and so on and so forth. Like it's the, the properties are the properties of each thing and how they relate are kind of transitive. So you can do one thing to one of them and the same thing to the other and you still maintain the cryptographic relationship between them. And so this kind of allows things like taking a, a public key and creating a new one by modifying it with a script and then modifying the private key as well. And so what you wind up with is 
a completely normal looking public key um, that can be proven um, to be related to a script that isn't publicly revealed. So you could sign a transaction and just spend it like normal, but you would also, um, with a soft fork upgrade to the consensus rules, be able to prove that the secret script was related to this public key and would be recognized as a, another way to spend this. And so you kind of can replicate the same kind of thing with MAST without giving away that it's MAST unless you use the second way to spend things. And so what Taproot pretty much does is instead of just modifying the public key with a script, you modify it with the Merkle root of a conventional mass tree. And then that way, you know, you can spend it normally just using the, the modified private key with that Merkle root and it looks like a totally normal transaction. So when you go to spend it, nobody can tell it apart from anything. And you don't have to do um, what I said earlier and kind of make all transactions bigger and kind of fake a mast for normal transactions that don't have multiple spending scripts. And so this kind of takes the, the normal like first path in a mass tree, which is everybody just cooperates and spends something and you don't have to deal with the other conditions and it just makes it the regular public key um, without giving away that there's any other spending uh, conditions. And it, it's a huge privacy improvement and gets rid of that efficiency loss to kind of make up for mass transactions on their own standing out from others. And graft root is kind of a related idea where instead of kind of anchoring the, the Merkle root of a mass tree to the public key so that you can prove their relationships, what you would do is create like the the multi-sig public key which just looks normal and then you would create a new script and sign it with that key and so instead of like the the public key itself proving a relationship to the script that signature from that key would prove it and instead of having to build a mass tree that would grow bigger the the more different script paths you create in it you can just pretty much create an infinite amount of scripts that could also spend from that key and the proof that they're allowed to spend from it is that key signing those scripts and pretty much the you know some some of you might be wondering like why the hell are we doing both of these and it really comes down to um, a bit of a size trade-off and then also a trade-off in terms of like information you have to store. So uh, the taproot um, address or, or script is, is something that you can kind of reconstruct. Like if I know all of the different scripts in that tree or at least the the hash nodes in that tree and the one that I want to use, I can reconstruct that whole thing myself. Like I don't have to explicitly save everything. I just have to be able to reconstruct it 
and then I can still prove that this is a valid way to spend from this uh, UTXO. So you, it, it's a lot more um, resistant to losing things and losing access to coins. Like as long as you can reconstruct that, you can spend from it using the other paths. Whereas with Graftroot, the linkage isn't the Merkle tree, it's the signature from that main public key. So if you have an alternate um, you know, script that can spend these coins, that signature of that script is the only thing that proves that you can spend those coins with that script. And if you lose that signature, there is no way to reconstruct it yourself. You either have to get it from another participant in creating it, or you have to convince all of the parties in that address that is at the root of it to re-sign a script. And so there's the kind of different trade-offs involved in the risk of losing the ability to spend coins. And then also with Taproot, you build that, that masked Merkle tree and then that's it. Only the things in that tree or the public key uh, itself are, are what conditions will allow you to spend those coins. Whereas with Graftroot, because it's just the signature from that main key that is proving that other scripts can spend from it, you can add new ways to spend a coin after the fact without actually spending them. Like to change the, the spending conditions in a Taproot transaction, you would have to create a whole new address, a whole new Merkle tree with different conditions, and then actually spend and move those coins from the first one to that new one. Whereas with Graftroot, all of the people involved in creating that public key can just sign a new script and you don't have to actually spend those coins or move them to kind of add a, a new way to spend them. And so like while both of these things do accomplish um, very similar things in terms of being more private and efficient in having multiple ways to spend a coin, there are a lot of nuanced trade-offs in terms of the, the risk of losing access to things and the, um, how would I say this? My brain is struggling for the word, the flexibility of uh, like how you can modify and create those conditions. And so it, it really, you know, at first, it, when you look at these two concepts, it might not make sense. Why do both? But when you really drill down to the specifics, I mean, both of them have situations where one would make sense over the other. And there are a lot of different uh, trade-offs and use cases involved, one versus the other. Man, that's a uh, good little ZK Snacks episode right there. I've got some notes here in front of me. I hope everybody watching does too, because this is a uh, meaty topic as far as uh, the technicals go. And it's one of those subjects where I've been pretty much in the naive side of this. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely, you know, going to go over this a couple more times because these are one of those topics that comes up at meetups where I always just feel a little out of place. So, I really appreciate that breakdown. And, um, you know, I'm actually going to, this will be an episode. I for sure go back and rewatch this aspect a few times and listen to it and go over this a couple more times because, uh, yeah, I mean, these are, 
you know, important aspects that are coming up in Bitcoin development, and it's important to understand them. So I uh, really appreciate that breakdown. And, you know, it's going to help, you know, with the privacy improvements. That's what we're all moving forward to. And I mean, uh, looks like, um, you know, it'd be good if we had some of this stuff built in because it looks like uh, some of these dark net markets aren't taking advantage of some of the things that are available to them. Right, Janine? Yeah, pretty funny. Uh, two days ago, Nopara tweeted out a report from Chain Analysis, our favorite blockchain surveillance company, uh, and they published a report called the Crypto Crime Report uh, just this month. Um, and before we get into the particular finding that Nopara pointed out, uh, they had three key takeaways uh, in that report that state, uh, first, they claimed that two hacking groups were responsible for the majority of hacks in 2018 with about a billion dollars in what they call hacking revenues, which is just interesting way to say that uh, in 2018 alone. In that section of the report, they outline a behavior pattern that they've noticed when cryptocurrency thefts happen, where hackers tend to wait for about 30, 40 days uh, to move funds after the initial theft, because that's usually how long it takes before people kind of forget forget about the story. It's not a hot topic. So they're not as likely to be looking out for activity on the blockchain related to that. Uh, the second key takeaway they had was that uh, darknet market activity nearly doubled throughout 2018, even though the um, cryptocurrency prices obviously fell, uh, respectively. Uh, apparently, the transaction volume surpassed $600 million, which is still relatively small, but uh, I mean, in the global scale of things, but apparently it doubled, even though prices went down, which means that price probably doesn't, uh, I mean, a lot of things in the market aren't really affected by price as much. Uh, the third key takeaway was that Ethereum scams in particular doubled between 2017 and 2018, but they still represent less than 0.01% of all Ether value, and they uh, quote, the success of phishing scams in particular is cyclical, moving with the price. So users should watch out for more sophisticated Ponzi schemes and ICO, exit while, ICO exits while prices are low, and be prepped for more phishing attacks when prices rise. Now, the part that Nopara pointed out from this report, uh, which is that 77% of money transferred from darknet markets to exchanges is not mixed before reaching the exchange. And that number is derived from some figures on page 24 of the report within the section that has a great title, Understanding Money Laundering. Uh, chain analysis says that, quote, a majority of illicit funds actually flow through either exchanges, uh, like you know custodial centralized exchanges or peer-to-peer -peer exchanges, uh, 12%, with the rest flowing through other conversion services such as mixing services, Bitcoin ATMs, and gambling sites. Um, so exchanges, 65%, peer-to-peer exchanges, 12%, mixing the rest. So if you do some simple math, add 65 plus 12, well, that makes 77%. Or said differently, only 23% of crypto from darknet markets is mixed before being sent to exchanges. That's pretty low, and obviously, uh, Nopara uh, would not, you know, <laughs> exactly want to express disappointment about that, considering the subject matter. But of course, it is kind of stupid for these people to not be at least trying to mix the coins before sending them to an exchange. Um, 
So then they say uh, in that section, the role of cryptocurrency in money laundering will continue to evolve as the legal and regulatory environment shifts. However, the great traceability of cryptocurrency paired with increasing know your customer KYC requirements across the cryptocurrency ecosystem means it is not a game changing new way to launder funds for large criminal organizations. Still, the use of cryptocurrency by smaller players such as local drug dealers, ooh, scary, is a concern for law enforcement who will continue to prosecute these crimes. In the last section, looking ahead in 2019, they say that we believe 2019 will be the year of distributed crime, where criminal activity oh. is <laughs> where criminal activity is shifting to new decentralized platforms. This is a major issue for law enforcement. Criminal organizations will shift away from darknet markets towards encrypted apps, including Telegram, Signal, and WhatsApp. Now, I have a question. Has anyone who wrote this report, did they use any of those apps? Because not a single one of them is decentralized. Wait a minute, crime isn't already distributed? I thought crime was distributed all over the place. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> distributed crime, it's the new probably going to be the new buzzword for the law enforcement crypto community. But what I find was like there's two funny parts of that quote. It's the part with distributed crime and then it's the part where they say that oh, it's shifting to new decentralized platforms, which is Telegram, Signal and WhatsApp, which are extremely centralized. <laughs> um, oh so I think that's a terrible example. Um, also, you know, obviously it's it's stupid because it's a subtle dig at what are actually perfectly normal privacy apps that millions of people use for a variety of things. Some of them not even privacy related. Like I've always found it's like anyone who is texting directly anymore where you're like paying a fee for each text. It just doesn't make sense anymore. Why would you do that when you can use every app that doesn't have that, you know, ridiculous added cost? A lot of people are using messaging apps just because they don't want to pay for texting. So, eh. and anyway, yeah, subtle dig at, you know, normal privacy apps, which most people just use to send each other cat pictures, not participate in crypto crime orgies that don't really exist. Um, I think we've said this a number of times before, but a lot of governments uh, in and companies who write reports like this have become increasingly willing to broaden the scope of what they mean when they say money laundering beyond, you know, the actual definition, which is obscuring the proceeds of crime. So, and obviously we know that a lot of, from the Silk Road, a lot of activity on the Silk Road was selling either products that were legal, perfectly normal, maybe they were just off-brand, or products that were in the gray market where they weren't like, hardcore drugs or body parts or people or things like that. It was like unpasteurized milk or something Wait, body like that. Parts? Are you telling me there's cannibal meat markets on the darknet market? No, I was making a list of the things that most people assume would be for sale on the darknet. And no, actually it's not. In fact, one of the, one of the, one of the stories that I think I've mentioned it before on the show, but there was a story from a guy who I think he was even using his real name when he told this story that he actually bought cancer drugs for his mother um, on the Silk Road because they were too expensive to buy anywhere else. So 
Nah. Yeah, I remember that. Right on. Yeah, so now, uh, yeah, money laundering, not really a useful term in most cases. Now, if you would like to help out Nopara to not be alone during the upcoming chain analysis webinar, which takes place tomorrow at 6 p.m. CET, you can find his tweet in the video description and sign up for uh, a webinar with chain analysis senior economist uh, and see what she has to say about crypto crimes. And they claim she will be taking audience questions. Um, of course, there is no obligatory form to fill out in order to join it with your name, email address, and organization. And in the true spirit of supporting privacy and anonymity, I would implore you to maybe spoof all of those things uh, if you do decide to participate. And in fact, I think it would be funny if a bunch of us went in there with like names of big bankers. Sir Robert <laughs> Nobbins. <laughs> yeah. Um, it would be <laughs> it would be funny to go in there with the names of bankers and ask questions <laughs> of their chief economist. So yes. Yeah, this report was uh, kind of crazy. Whenever I saw Nopar posted, I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Like, do these darknet markets not understand like that these uh, these mixing services are like one of the major things that's helping Bitcoin fungibility and keeping people. Uh, you know, off the radar of things, of reports like this. And, you know, I guess uh, it's still kind of not really known that well. And uh, yeah, I imagine, you know, we should be kind of just uh, pushing a little bit more into that whole ecosystem with these uh, coin joins. I saw something that Nopar was talking about working on like a reverse coin join or something. I mean, like I started thinking like, is that, you know, and this is where it kind of brings in this uh, question about like Bitcoin fungibility and where it's going and everything. And, you know, some people like uh, they're thinking about this idea of like, uh, you know, they say it's like a dust attack. But I mean, like, um, I don't know. I think maybe that's like, you know, when we start talking about implementing best practices, I mean, maybe it's like a coin join and a reverse coin joins and, you know, these sort of things that just keep, you know, these uh, these analysis companies uh, off of the trail. And, um, you know, yeah, like distributed, <laughs> distributed um, crime. That's uh, that's going to be a new one for sure. And um, yeah, it just makes me think about like the way that, you know, these chain analysis are. It's like, um, you know, they can uh, like uh, Andreas, he says like, you know, Bitcoin's putting governments to the test. And I mean, like governments, you know, those are just it's like governments. I think we have this conception that it's like this group of you know, it's like an entity where really it's like supposed to just be of the people. And so I think we're starting to see like all these, you know, like we covered Bitfury and Lightning Peach and all that last episode. And, you know, we talk about these chain analysis companies. And I think we just kind of have to recognize that that whole side of the spectrum of this ecosystem is, uh, is basically our opposition on all this. And we've got to keep uh, maneuvering it. I think it's going to be Taproot, Graphroot, joins. And just uh, getting these things into these uh, into these different markets where people need cancer medicine and it's like a ridiculous amount that they have to pay where they're at right now. And these are the sort of markets that allow that to where uh, they don't actually have to take a flight out of the country to get these things done. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Did you have anything else on this report before I slide into this other aspect of it? All right, I'll take that as a quick note. So the two hacker groups you discussed really quick, I kind of uh, I dug into that a little bit because out of this uh, chain analysis report, this was a pretty big headline out there. So, 
Yeah, in this report, we get a glimpse into all these hacks, and it looks like uh, we have two groups to blame for a majority of them. Chainalysis reports that the groups are responsible for nearly 60% of all exchange hacks netting around $1 billion. Sort of a repeat on that. So according to the report, on average, the hacks we traced, this is according to the report, quote, on average, the hacks we traced have the two prominent hacking groups stole $90 million per hack. The hackers typically move stolen funds through a complex array of wallets and exchanges in an attempt to disguise the funds, criminal origins. So, suppose criminal origins, end quote. The two groups are referred to as alpha and beta. The alpha group is the one that you were talking about, Jadine. It's a giant, tightly controlled organization, partially driven by non-monetary goals, is what the, the report says. So, quote unquote. It's a giant, tightly controlled organization, partially driven by non-monetary goals. And uh, the beta group is, quote, less organized and small organization, absolutely focused on the money. The alpha team, excuse me, just once, <clears throat> sorry, I cleared my throat. So uh, the alpha team usually makes around, makes moves of around 15,000 transactions to help obfuscate its origin. As well, they move to turn 75% of the crypto into cash within 30 days. The beta group is comparatively slower, waiting some six, six to 18 months before cashing out the stolen cryptos. Then when they do cash out, it's usually done quickly with 50% at a, at a time through a single exchange. The firm reports that despite the market downturn of 2018, they saw active darknet markets nearly doubled. That's another one we're doubling up on. So cryptocurrency crime is evolving. This is another quote from the report. Cryptocurrency crime is evolving to become part of traditional crime. And we think this trend will continue in 2019. Market participants will need cutting edge technology and investigate analysis to fight back. So like we were just saying about the uh, BitFury and Crystal and, um, you know, just this is this narrative that all this stuff is criminal activity and it's something that, you know, this is money laundering whenever we kind of understand at this point that money laundering is all just a legal construct. And the same goes with the criminality and the terrorist and all this stuff. So it's uh, one of these things where, you know, I mean, these reports come out and it's interesting just to get a glimpse into the way that they see the situation. And uh, yeah, it's uh, this is yeah just another little piece of that report. Did you guys uh, have any comment on these alpha and beta groups? Honestly, I just think one, it's well, when you start identifying, you know, groups like this, like that, that is a big assumption because all of this really comes down to statistical analysis and like ultimately you really have no clue what types of communications like groups like this really use i mean it, it is very theoretically possible that multiple groups could be collaborating to obscure their footprints by mixing things or other mechanisms like that but you know, another aspect of this is just kind of like, I, I don't think in the Coindesk article uh, we linked, it, it really said this, but a Bitcoinist article on the same thing I read kind of started trying to like drum up and fear monger horse shit with like claims of, well, if people can hack this amount of Bitcoin, then 
could people be able to fund a 51% attack? And I mean, it's like, you know, when I see things like this, it's, it's always kind of painted in like a, think about the systemic consequences, think about the risk to Bitcoin. And it's like, okay, so these groups, as they're identified by chain analysis, stole a bunch of money. Like, why should I care? Why should Bitcoin care? Like, people steal things all the time. Like, criminal organizations exist. Like, that's just a reality of the world. I mean, no matter what technology, no matter what system you're talking about, like, criminals will exploit something. That's just how the world works. Yes, and we should point out that still the number one medium of exchange for criminal organizations, distributed or centralized, is the U.S. dollar. Bye now. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's where, yeah. So all these arguments just is like, okay, well, this is the way we see it. Like, all right. Well, I don't quite see it that way. I, I think I could see where the crime is uh, mainly focused, so. All right, well, let's uh, get into this last little story here. So getting into kicking their ICO. All right, so back in 2017, the messaging app company Kick did an ICO for their currency, Kin. And instead of paying a fine, they are standing up to the SEC. And, uh, you know, we've been seeing a lot of uh, these ICOs uh, that came out in 2017, either pay a fine and roll back their ideas or, you know, stand up and take a fight. And so that's what Kick is trying to do here. A representative from the company told CCN, we are, quote, we are unsure of how commission, how commissions will vote, but we believe that any enforcement action against Kick, Ken, and the foundation would be detrimental to the entire cryptocurrency industry, close quote. Kick CEO told Livingston, Ted Livingston sees this as a fight for the industry saying quote this situation is not unique to kick there are dozens of projects at a similar point with the sec we all believe that this industry needs regulation but we also believe that this is not the way to get it close quote sorry about all the quotes on this one but just kind of the way the story was put together <laughs> so it looks like they are trying to say their coin kin is a currency and not a security livingston says quote Today, you can earn and spend Ken in over 30 apps live in the Google Play and iOS app stores. Already, hundreds of thousands of people have exchanged Ken for goods and services. Ken is one cryptocurrency that is truly a currency. He goes on to say, the term security means any stock, treasury stock, security future, security-based swap bond, debenture certificate of interest of or participation in any profit sharing agreement, but shall not include currency or any note, draft, bill of exchange, or banker's acceptance, which has a maturity at the time of issuance, close quote. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, this all just sounds like a bunch of uh, language fighting and wordsmithing trying to figure out a way to, uh, you know, get this to where they're saying, like, look, our, our product is being used, it's in all these apps, and I mean, it's definitely a currency, and I mean, we'll see how it goes, but it sounds similar to the whole argument that, uh, you know, Ethereum's going through right now. And I mean, like Ethereum's being put to the test. Just another shout out, the CFTC is still taking requests as far as, you know, discussions about Ethereum centralization or decentralization. 
And um, I think this is kind of just playing into the same hands. I think we're seeing this and that Tyrion case kind of becoming these high profile cases that are trying to set a standard for uh, all the rest of these ICOs. And I mean, this is where, I mean, this case, I mean, it, it might have a bunch of interest behind it. That's not necessarily the kin ICO out of kick, but I mean, like these other guys that are trying to uh, make sure that they're all going to be above board. But um, yeah, that's what's going on with this uh, kick kin ICO with the SEC. They're fighting it out and uh, trying to argue that their ICO was not a security. It's a currency. What do you guys think? I think that they don't have a leg to stand on because not a single cryptocurrency has been recognized as having the status of money in the United States. They have had one court ruling um, was recently overturned um, in Florida, I believe, that is recognizing as money for the purposes of a case. But regulatorily, cryptocurrencies fall into one of two categories, a commodity or a security. And most of the basis by which anything is deemed a security is uh, the promotion of it, whether people purchase or invest in it based on expectations of a, a profit, whether it is something actually issued by an identifiable party. And all, all of the factors that generally lead to the SEC pointing at something as a security are undeniably fulfilled in their entirety by kick. So the, the way that he simply points at this exemption um, of security status for something that is deemed a currency, I mean, it, it, it's absurd. And I absolutely do not see this flying. Like, if, if that is the case, if, if by some ridiculous miracle that happens, that would pretty much overturn the entire regulatory status quo for any kind of cryptocurrency currently deemed a commodity that's widely used for transactional or pur purchases. And that would totally upend the, the regulation in this space. I mean, for instance, like I could, I could not see how the CFTC could argue their regulatory authority over something like Bitcoin if this were to set a precedent that simply being used for transactional purposes makes it a currency. It would no longer be a commodity and therefore no longer subject to the CFTC's regulatory authority. Like I just the the idea that they're going to point at this one line here and try to make this argument and stand against the SEC on it is absurd. Like I absolutely do not see this working out for them in the end. Yeah, to be honest, it sounds like. It sounds like any of these guys that I've seen a lot where it's like, oh, yeah, there's this is being used. It's being used. It's like, yeah, but you guys are setting up this way to where people are getting trapped up in this, you know, thing, thinking that they're going to make some money. And, you know, in that they make a few movements in the network. And also there's just all these like uh, it's just it seems like a lot of stuff being put together to try and just show uh, market activity on a given ICO to try and claim that it's being used as a currency. And, um, you know, that goes just like down the line on them. And uh, that's where I don't see this one any different. And it kind of just makes me look at it as the way like the kick saying like, well, no, we got, got the kick found, we got the kin foundation and we got kin and we got kick. It sounds a lot like, um, you know, they're trying to fill out this whole regulatory framework around 
something like Ethereum. That's just like a speculation of mine. But I mean, um, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those where I kind of see them like just trying to stand on this and fight, but I don't see it necessarily working out for them. But I mean, uh, you know, yeah, we'll just follow along with it and see how it goes. And uh, just another reminder, yeah, if you haven't gone to the CFTC's website to discuss uh, Ethereum in the ways that you kind of see the way that ecosystem stands, please do. All right, guys, looks like we made it. So I guess that puts us in final thought territory. All right, Janine beat me to it today. Yeah, so my final thought uh, is in regards to this battle of the walled gardens going on, where uh, if you haven't heard, Facebook had, um, I don't know what the period in which they did this was, because I don't use it, and I don't talk to anybody who uses it, um, but they were apparently offering a, quote, Facebook research VPN, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, and they were paying people, I think, $20 to install it, and this vpn would basically like it's not really a vpn in the sense that anyone would use a vpn because it was basically sucking up all of your traffic and app data and giving it to facebook for research purposes now facebook claims that i mean they, they're losing younger people by the day in the thousands but um, they claim that less than 5% of participants were teens and all minors had signed parental consent forms, but it's still a pretty shitty thing to do because I don't think they made it explicit that that was the purpose of the app, that they would basically be collecting your data. Uh, I mean, uh, by now you should assume that everything that Facebook touches is for that purpose. But the funny update that happened today is that Apple has revoked um, the iOS developer certificate for Facebook, which means um, normally with that certificate, Facebook can directly offer their apps without having to go through the App Store review, which most apps have to do if you're not a big company. Uh, but because this VPN thing was being offered on iOS, Apple found out about it. Um, and they decided to revoke that certificate. And so now any apps that currently exist or exist in the future have to go through the normal app review process. And in fact, because they disabled this certificate, um, according to this particular tweet, if you scroll down, he says that um, none of Facebook's internal iOS apps currently work, uh, which are used by thousands of their employees. Um, and that for employees to use Facebook, Facebook products on iOS, they have to go download them from the App Store. Either they have to re-download them or that's the only place they can get them. Um, and it's funny because apparently they announced their earnings today. So I just find this hilarious that I think, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a super fan of Apple, but I just think this was a good move because obviously Apple's business model is not in collecting user data as much. That's that's they've explicitly said that that's not their business model so it doesn't surprise me that they did this and i find it hilarious that facebook um had this another like another huge blow up happen on the day that they're announcing earnings and this is it's like pretty much consistently everything that has come out about facebook in the last couple of years especially has been really horrible and they are the absolute 
uh, they're the absolute worst thing on the internet. <laughs> I don't know why people still use it. I would like to see a vote among the uh, American people to whether or not to go and destroy Facebook servers and see how many people in America would say that's a good idea. I mean, this was a weird story. I mean, whenever you saw you talking about it, I was like, what? Facebook VPN for teens. And it's like you're selling a service that makes them think they're secure and private and they're teens and they've got all this ridiculous technology for them to go crazy with. And it just seems weird. Like, why would you do this? Like, why are you making VPNs, you know, marketed to teens when, yeah, there's this obvious, like, sucking up of the data, actually, that's going on. So you're telling these teenagers who don't know better that, uh, you know, you're going to be private on this server. And the reality is they're just gobbling everything up. And another thing was like this, you know, another walled garden problem with iOS. Did you guys see this stupid bug, this FaceTime bug, where you could FaceTime somebody and then call yourself real quick. And then next thing you know, the other person's microphone's been activated and you could just sit there and listen to them. I mean, these are problems where it's like the <laughs> yeah. open source stuff is like, this is why you need open source development. And I mean, of course, that that particular bug with FaceTime is another reason why I think phones are stupid. <laughs> and for the most part, smartphones are stupid and I don't like them. And uh, yeah, it's like, it's such a weight off my mind to not have to deal <laughs> with all of the potential garbage that my phone could do without my permission. So yeah. Yeah. Shinobi, I know you want one of these dumb phones, man. Got to, got to get those things going in the market. Mm-hmm. All right, what's your final thought, Mr. Rick? All right, so Nopara made a post yesterday that uh, kind of just pointed out the um, the second slide in the artwork that we uh, did for the show. And, man, it got a huge positive response, and a lot of the community is great, giving some great feedback. And, you know, it looks like it's been a big hit, and, and you know, it kind of took off in Reddit. And this is just like another – like I really want to – you know, thank Nopara for putting it out there to kind of just like gauge the reaction because, um, you know, we do these and um, a lot of time everybody's listening to the audio and everything. And so like just uh, watching the intro, a lot of people don't catch it. And so it was good to get a spotlight like this and kind of took off on Reddit too. And, um, you know, it's something like a thought, I think over the past few days where I've actually for the first time, like had a tweet go viral and, you know, a, really like a bunch of attention towards uh, certain things that I'm doing. I mean, uh, it kind of like, you know, for a long time, I've been hesitant to tweet, hesitant to really discuss stuff on these forums because um, I always feel like things are going to be sort of pointed back against me on the things that I say. And now I think I'm starting to realize that uh, it doesn't matter what you say. Uh, somebody's going to try and find a way to peel it apart and throw it back at you. And um, so I think my final thought is like, uh, yeah, I learned something this past few days about, uh, you know, just uh, confidence and, you know, just standing up for your word and not being afraid about the possibilities of the blowback whenever you do talk on these uh, discussion forms. So, yeah, that's my final thought. Thanks again, Nopar. I really appreciate it. Alrighty, I have two quick final thoughts. First, I'm going to introduce you all to my favorite memer on Twitter, Sal the Agorist. 
a dam letting some spill water out with unreasonable search and seizures in the reservoir. The dam is the Fourth Amendment. I smell weed, though, as the water pouring out through the release valve. <laughs> I thought that, that was kind of that re- the, uh, story. Yeah, <laughs> quickly, that reminds me. I saw a story today that some guy was in jail for 42 days because he got caught with laundry detergent and they thought it was Coke. America for you. And then um, Eric Voorhees felt the need to virtue signal empty parroted words as he is wont to do, just repeating other people. Libertarianism is the ideology of peace, the application of the moral assumption that humans shouldn't harm or steal from one another. It is considered extreme, radical, and unrealistic by those who seek any excuse to coerce their fellow man into behaviors they prefer. So I'm going to take this and actually put things in my own words instead of just parrot nonsense. Um, Libertarianism is the ideology of leave me the fuck alone. The application of the assumption that you are a total fucking dumbass and I will not let my life be steered by a man dumber than you. It is considered extreme, radical, and unrealistic by those masses of dumbasses who think they know better than you. Fuck you, dumbasses. All right, we've got our swearing quota in for the day. (laughs) Yes, we do. Always Eric bringing up those angry shinobi friends. All right, so uh, just one more quick thing. I'm going to be out of town this weekend, and so won't be able to make the next show. Just a final, final, final thought. All right, guys. All righty. So thank you for uh, watching today. Been a very slow day, and I guess uh, we'll just have to say toodaloo until Sunday. Later, everyone. Adios.